All right, church, I'm going to say a blanket statement. It'll give the direction of where we're going, and I'm pretty sure not many of you will disagree with me. Life is full of doubts. It's a part of a human experience. Uh, On your worst days in your marriage, if you're honest enough, you doubt if you married the right one. I'm just speculating. Maybe. Maybe. Never. Someone said never. Uh, We go through doubts of whether we're going to move or not move, whether we should transition or not transition. We have doubts on the decisions we're making as parents and how we're stewarding our kids' lives. We choose a career and later doubt. We end up choosing how many kids we're going to have, and then we later doubt. Such is the human experience. But church, I think we all know this. God doesn't want us to live there. He doesn't want us to settle in in seasons of doubt. He knows that it's not viable for the born-again life to flourish when we are wallowing in seasons of doubt. He knows what is best for us and continually pressing in to the born-again life and the blood-bought promises that he's given to each one of us. He didn't create us, in other words, to stay in doubt. Unviable, can't flourish. He doesn't want us there. If we stay in doubt, it'll eventually breed unbelief, a disconnection between you and your closeness with God. If we eventually stay too long in doubt, we will lack confidence. And there's one thing that I've known and experienced and tasted in the goodness of God the last 15 years of being born again. He wants us walking confident as sons and daughters of his. He wants us walking full of the spirit and confidence of who he is and who he is in us, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Amen, church? So we're going to look at today's text, and we're going to see how that happens. You don't just drift from doubt into a spirit-filled confidence where you walk boldly into your household and declare, I am purchased by God. I have authority over strongholds. I have authority to pray over demonic strongholds being broken. I have authority as a parent to discipline my child and love them radically and pray to the Father that he will make changes within our household. You don't just drift into that. Something has to happen. We'll look at it in this text. Today, we're in Genesis 15. Genesis 15. We will see two doubts from Abe. Uh, Abe is Abraham. You know me. I like nicknames. So I'm going to be referencing Abraham as Abe. Two doubts. And God will address both of these doubts by making a covenant with Abe. A covenant with Abe. Covenant is, is a big theological term. It's one that's based and rooted in Scripture. And it's simply this. A covenant is a partnership with God. Think of it these days as a little bit more than a contract and more like a marriage license. It is a partnership with God. In a covenant, God makes promises, and in exchange, he asks humanity to fulfill certain commitments, and then they shake hands. Covenants are one of the most important biblical themes in looking back at how God used in his redemptive plan to restore humanity back to him. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 1, church, we had our God-given purpose given to Adam and Eve that we would multiply and that we would steward God's stuff well. In other ways, subdue the earth. 
That was our purpose. That was our original commissioning. Well, Genesis 3 happens to give us a a real quick recap. Genesis 3 happens, and we see humanity rebels against God. And that ends up, whoop, sidetracking all of our purposes, humanity. So we then fast forward to Genesis 6, and then humanity rebels against God again. Another rerouting of our purpose. And if you think that wasn't good enough, Humanity then, at the Tower of Babel, if you remember a couple weeks ago, chapter 11, rebels against God a third time and sidetracks God's purpose for humanity. And this time, the consequence from Yahweh to his people, humanity, is to scatter them across the nations. And last week, do you remember we met Abe from among all the nations after he scattered and disciplined humanity because of their disobedience, our disobedience? He looks and he picks one pagan dude among all the nations. And he ends up making promises to Abe to make his family great by making them a nation, giving him multiple descendants, and them inheriting land eventually. So in today's passage, in chapter 15, God is going to do a ceremony. It's a ceremony for the covenant that he made with Abraham three chapters ago, in which we learned last week. He's doing this because he wants Abraham to walk in confidence that what he promised Abraham will happen. And God's covenant with Abraham, which he initiates with Abraham, as we saw last week, is actually one of four different covenants prior to Jesus' arrival, his first coming. So this is the second that we see in Genesis in the Old Covenant scriptures. That's why if you hear me allude to the Old Testament as the Old Covenant, it's because the word testament is actually covenant. So there are four partnerships we see, four different times where God strikes a deal with humanity. I will promise this, and I'm expecting this from you, humanity. And each one, church, was an attempt to rescue his world, the world that he lost in Genesis 3. Each of the four covenant partnerships continues, and this is the second of four, to drive history forward, inevitably, to the arrival of Jesus, the climax of history thus far. And so let's get into the text and see how this covenant that Abe has with God ends up being confidence that resolves his doubts. You with me, church? All right, you're gonna see it, verse one on the screen, let's get it. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. Abe had just defeated an army with four kings, unexpectedly. He goes to rescue his nephew Lot. His nephew Lot should not have been that close to Sodom. And boom, in comes the rescuer, Abram. And he was most likely, after those battles, afraid. So Yahweh steps in because he cares for humanity. He cares for his dude, Abe. And he says, listen, (laughs) don't worry about retaliation. I'm going to protect you. And check out Abe's response. We're going to see his first question and his first doubt of God. Look with me. Verse 2. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't have a son? Abe don't care about the the promise that God just made to protect him. Why? Because God did not yet in this moment make good on giving Abraham a son. The promise that he made two chapters ago yet has not yet happened. So when Abraham hears this promise, right, from this new God who he's just experienced three years ago, 
He's saying to himself, okay, that's all good, but how can I trust you when you haven't made good on your last promise? I can't blame him. We shouldn't blame him because we're looking back at the story. But look and be empathetic with Abe. Ever since he received the promise three chapters ago, he has walked from Hebron down to Egypt, to the promised land, back up, chased people out. He's walked 1,065 miles approximately. That's like us hauling it right now from this moment and walking through this cold with melted snow, eventually getting down to Texas with some consider the promised land because it's like probably 80 right now, making your way all the way down and walking through part of the Gulf of Mexico. That's how far he's traveled in these three chapters. And then during one of his visits, when he initially gets to the promised land, after the promises in chapter 12, he gets there and a famine hits. That's unexpected. Now he, he's chased down and has to go down to Egypt, which we learned about last week. When he's in Egypt, unexpectedly, he's confronted with being scared. He gets passive. He makes a terrible decision. And so he rationalizes, I'll give up my bride, Sarai, to spend time with Pharaoh of Egypt in order that I don't get killed. Bad decision. Unexpectedly happens. They ended up getting booted from Egypt. He ends up walking back up to the promised land. And then what happens when he gets to the promised land? He has an army that's taking away his nephew Lot unexpectedly. Like there are a ton of things he didn't expect. There's crap he's dealing with in this moment and in the past three chapters that now when God then promises him another thing, he's saying, how can I trust you? How can I trust you if you yet not have fulfilled a promise you made to me three chapters ago? He's wondering, essentially, can I trust you, God? We've all been there. Can I trust you, God? Abe just wants to know. And look at how God responds. Look at how God responds. Verse four. Then God smacked him upside the head and said, you can trust me because I'm God, dummy. No, oh, my bad. That's the... No, that's not in there. Verse four, then the Lord said to him with patience and gentleness, no, your servant will not, will not be your heir for you have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can, if you even can. That's how many descendants you will have. God doesn't scold him. He addresses the issue and the question and his doubt in doubting God. And he says, not only am I going to give you a son, but from him, you'll have descendants that outnumber the stars in the sky. That is our God. He addresses our doubts. And look with me how Abram responds. It's pretty interesting. Verse six, infamous verse in the Bible. And Abram believed the Lord and the Lord counted him as righteousness because of his faith. Abe believed God. He took him out his word and God sees him in right standing with him. Fascinating. But check out the process. Abe brought his doubt to God just as we should. God then answers his doubts in which God is faithful to do, even with our doubts. And then Abe believed. And there's something amazing about faith and belief that God loves. He counts Abe in this situation as righteous. And the story 
lives happily ever after. <laughs> Abraham doesn't doubt anymore. I'll just pray out. There was no need for G No, there's laughing because most of you know exactly where this goes. It's not even another verse. You, I mean, you can even take a breath or a gasp and Abe is doubting again. Let's look at the text. Verse eight, then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. But Abram, but Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually possess it? It's only one verse later and he's expressing doubt again. But this doubt is different. The last doubt he had was, God, how can I trust you? And now he's saying, God, how can I trust myself? He's experiencing self-doubt. He's saying, I know that you've promised, I've already said yes, I believe you'll provide me a son. You made me another promise, a re-promise of the land, and now I'm thinking to myself, what if I can't defend this land? I just, I just went through a lot of battles. What, do I have to do this all the time? How can I relate with you, Yahweh? If I can't hold up my end of the bargain, like I was doubting you, now what if I can't hold up my end of the bargain? How can we have a relationship? I, I, this is new to me, Yahweh. How can I, will you, will you be okay with that? Will you kick me out of the land eventually because of my disobedience? And let's see how God reacts to Abe's self-doubt. Verse nine, the Lord told him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a partridge in a pear, and a young pigeon. So Abram represented all these to him and killed them. Peter alert. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. What is happening God is proving to Abe by making a covenant contract with him that he will fulfill the land promise as well as the descendants promise. In our written culture, we put everything into a written contract. All the terms, all the agreements, and each party signs off on it. In ancient times, it was an oral culture. So what they would do is they would act out the consequences of if a party did not keep their end of the bargain. And in a typical covenant contract in those days, you would get these animals, you cut them in half, you'd separate them, and then you'd create an aisle. And as you would walk through, both parties would say out loud, if I don't end up keeping up my end of the bargain, may I be butchered like these animals? Could you imagine that today? That is word is bond type stuff. <laughs> May I be butchered like these animals. And so Abe sets up the ceremony and he's fully expecting Yahweh, I'm sorry, he's fully expecting himself to walk through alone. This is heavy context, so track with me. Why alone? Because in those ancient times, if you were making a covenant contract with one another and it was one in which someone obviously was doing a favor for the other party, then the person who was doing the favor would not have to walk through and pay the consequences if they did not hold up their end of the bargain because it was such on unequal scales. They were basically doing the other person a favor. And so this was the case in the kings of their day. 
you would have a king go take over. And then the peasants or those who survived, they would say, hey, do us a favor, O king. We want to be a blessing to your kingdom being established here. So will you. And the king, although he didn't get much of anything other than just, okay, you guys are loyal servants, would throw him a bone and they would do the contract. And in that situation, you would just have the peasants walk through, essentially saying, if if, if I don't get, if I don't keep up my end of the bargain, may I be butchered, O king, because you've done me such a great favor. And this would have been the case between God and Abe. Unequal scales. Homeboys only contributing if you leave your hometown. God is contributing every blessing under the starry heavens. Unequal, so he's envisioning, okay, I'm going to have to walk through this thing alone. But that's not what happened. Read with me, verse 17. A powerful, very powerful contextual text that I'll unpack. Verse 17. After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking pot and a flaming torch pass through the halves of the carcasses. Abe wakes up from this heaviness he's feeling. And he looks up and he sees fire and smoke walking through the aisle of the dead carcasses. What is going on here? Well, 400 years after this moment in the text, Abe has all of his descendants and smoke and fire end up meeting them at Mount Sinai. It was a representation of God and his presence. And not only that, but smoke and a pillar of fire by night would then guide them 400 years later in this text. His presence would guide them as they left and exited Egypt and wandered through the desert. In other words, the smoke and the fire that went through the carcasses was God. It was a theophany, as theologians would say it. It's a manifestation so that we could visually see God. And don't miss out on this, church. God walking through those carcasses was him saying to Abe, if I don't end up keeping up my end of the bargain, may I be butchered just like these animals. God saying that. And that, that was astonishing because the context that he understood in which I gave you, right? Unequal footing. A king doesn't put his neck out on the line. He doesn't pay consequences if it goes wrong. And so he must have been shocked in this moment, but also noticed something more and different in this text. Abe's not walking with him. It is a one-party covenant. God, the creator of the universe, the lover of our souls, is walking through alone. Essentially, God was saying, let me be butchered, if I don't uphold my word, and let me be butchered if you don't uphold your word. On both ends of the spectrum, he was saying, I love humanity. I love Luke so much, who's sitting right now in a Bennington gym worshiping God so much that I'm not going to get you, Abe, I'm not going to allow you and your imperfectness, if that's a word, to get in the way because I want restoration between me and humanity. That every person who is redeemed in this church, he wanted to get, a re- get rid of every contribution man could make and also the mistakes we would make so that he would pursue us. He takes on the brunt of the covenant. That's the type of God that we know. Church, it's been 4,000 years 
since God made that covenant with Abe. And he's kept every single word. Every single word. Abe is given a son after this named Isaac. And from there, the Jewish nation ends up coming about. That ends up fulfilling the stars in the sky. And they fail miserably at holding up their end of the bargain. 600 years after God's covenant with Abe. So fast forward with me a little bit. It's a quick preview. God makes covenant with Abram's family at Mount Sinai again. The Ten Commandments. He promises to bless them if they're going to obey the moral laws he gives them. And they fail miserably. They worship pagan gods, which were demonically principled. Not only that, but God then moves everything forward and says, you know what? I made a covenant with Abe. I'm not going to allow that to sidetrack what I committed to. And that's restoring humanity on my terms. And so then, 400 years after Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Abe's family again through King David. And through King David, he says, David, if you'll promise to me that you will point Israel, Abraham's family, to bring peace and justice to the world and live out my moral law, then I will bring peace and justice through you to the nations. All of the kings, most of the kings end up failing miserably. And yet God doesn't allow his redemptive plan to be sidetracked. So then you fast forward the timeline to 2,000 years ago, which is a 1,000 year jump later, where Jesus the Messiah comes on the scene and he fulfills every single covenant that God made with Abraham's family. He was the family of Abraham and he brought blessings of that family to the whole world. He was the faithful Israelite who never sinned and he was the king from the descendants of David who brought justice and peace into the world in his first coming and in his second coming in the future, he will bring it forevermore, amen? Amen. He fulfilled every promise of that covenant. And we can trust that in the future, the land promise that he made will be fulfilled. How he does that, we trust him. Remember when God said also, church, that he would be butchered if Abraham's family did not keep up their end of the bargain? Well, he kept that promise too. 2,000 years ago on Calvary Hill, he was butchered on our behalf. He was butchered because of the disobedience of humanity, of Abraham's family. He was butchered like the carcasses that were split in two in which Abe saw God walk through. On the cross, before the cross, both and, as he approached the cross and was falsely accused of insedition, he was beaten beyond recognition, the scriptures say. 39 whips that opened up most likely 7,000 stitches worth of work. And not only that, he was punched, slapped, spit on, and mocked. He carried a cross that was over 125 pounds on open and dry wounds the very next morning. Actually, a couple hours after his beating. And on the cross, they drove nails into both of his wrists. They, they put nails between his ankles, and then they hung him on a cross suspended where he could hardly breathe for days. And eventually gave his life up and suffocated all to make good on the promise he made to Abraham. That even if Abraham and his family, humanity, could not keep their promise in the covenants, 
that God would make it happen because of his love for humanity and because he's a covenant promise-keeping type of God. Church, we worship that type of God, a faithful and covenant-keeping God. We're the result of God keeping his promises to Abe. Let that be our actual confidence that when we doubt ourselves or doubt him, we look back four years ago and say, but God, you're a professional in dealing with doubters. I can trust you. Some of us are struggling with doubting God, that he will bless our efforts in slaying sin, that he will bless our efforts in raising our children in the way. Some of us are doubting that God will bring about not a promise universally for everyone found in the word, but a subjective word given by the spirit of God and vision for your life. There are doubts and snares each one of us can fall into multiple times throughout the week. Some of us struggle with confidence in if we have what it takes. Christ, essentially, without knowing it, saying that Christ in us can't accomplish what God wants of us. That we can't raise children who love Jesus that will eventually make God honor and says that we can raise children or we can be the person in our family that breaks strongholds generationally to where love, faithfulness, covenant, commitment, and marriage can actually be sustained. And the good news of Jesus can continue through our children and our grandchildren. Some of us doubt ourselves that we have what it takes to fulfill the calling on our life that we've heard from God. Or that we will actually obey God. There's some of us throughout the week who go into a day already doubting that we can remain sinless in a day. And I don't know in the text where we fell into that in the word of God. Saying that we can't be sinless and we're going to sin against God every single day. That's experience, that's not the word of God. And we doubt ourselves because of human experience instead of focusing on the word of God. That God in us is his righteousness and he can empower us to be obedient in every single thing. I recently became aware of doubt that I had in God. Um, I've been a big proponent of 1 John 3. Uh, There's no greater joy than to see my children walk in the, tr- in the truth, in the way of truth. Um, I've always believed that. My kids are now getting older. Uh, three months ago, I praise God that three, my big three, they profess their faith in Christ. Very genuine. I mean, like, so much so, I didn't grow up a Christian, so I didn't know how to handle it as much. I, like, tried to talk them out of becoming a Christian. It was kind of a weird dynamic. And they were all in. One of them said, I, I, I won't be moved by emotion, essentially. I'm going to wait. A week later, he gives his life to Jesus. And I've seen them and got to coach them through life, as young as they are, right? And correcting them as saying, God's in you. His spirit's in you. You don't have to do that. It's been a beautiful thing. It's been the greatest joy I've experienced. And they're all, I know it's going to continue to grow. But I have truly doubted the past couple months that when I sit down on a couch on Saturdays and I see my kids running around and they're not in sports, I like panic. And I think to myself, am I doing the right thing 
by not having my kids in sports yet? Like essentially, I, I, I almost panic about it. Now, why we're not doing it is another story. The Holy Spirit said, if you want to keep your marriage health, healthy and thriving, put in your kids later than other families. I mean, no judgment on any other family that goes younger. We just have uh, six kids that are, um, what were they? They were born well of six years and under, something along those lines, eight years and under. <laughs> See, that's what happens when you end up having six kids that close. And so I know that God has told me a promise and to walk confidently in it. But what I'm sitting down and I'm panicking and I'm anxious about if I'm making the right decision, if my kids will end up doing sports, I envision them playing even flag football. And ultimately, the Holy Spirit convicted me. You think that your kids playing sports among all those things in their life is going to be the greatest joy you ever experience in life. Now, I know it's weird saying it out loud, but I believed it in my heart. Until I was pressed into this text, and then the Holy Spirit whispered to me throughout the week. When I brought it to him, I finally brought it to him, and I said, I can't handle it anymore. Can you take this from me? I'm doubting that raising my kids and not getting them in sports right now is the best for me, my family, and them. The Holy Spirit said, you're doing what I told you. Trust me. And from there, I felt just a restoration of confidence, grateful to continue to walk and step and discern in every season. Friends, bring your doubts to God. He doesn't want us walking around with our heads down, low with confidence, low with a trust in him. The born-again Christian was made to be confident. The born-again Christian was made to continually trust in God. He didn't make good on Abe's covenant 4,000 years ago for us to continually live in doubt. Are you feeling what I'm saying, church? God is a covenant-keeping God. Child of God, bring your doubts about him to him. Bring your doubts about yourself to him. He's a loving father, patient, enduring, and wants to address us with love. Let today's text be an encouragement and faith builder for us. Let's pray. Jesus, you're good. You're kind. Build our faith and trust in you. God, would you bring to mind right now the things where we're falling into unbelief in? And before we get there, God, would you press us into bringing it uh, while it's still in the form of doubt? You desire so much, God, to build confidence within your people. Thank you, God, for butchering yourself, allowing that to be happening, God, so that we would be made right with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.